Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. Sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot. And sitting over a choppy webcam connection is Liam. <laughs> because we're tier four now. Oh, Hooray. Yes. Gorgeous. I think possibly one of the only podcasts still operating over tier four that normally records in person. So there you go. There's something going for us. You're not going to fucking beat us down. I'm telling you now. <laughs> you you Go away, Boris. You've cancelled Christmas, but you can't cancel the Cinementalist <laughs> podcast. I'll tell you that much for nothing. Uh, have you been, dude? Yeah, ticking over nicely, mate. <laughs> Standard bullshit, really. We can't do anything. So no, yeah. Just in enjoying my four walls, you know. Particularly, we now have the South African variant, so that's yes, that's some fun stuff. It's brilliant, isn't it? isn't it? Yes, wonderful. A right brutal bastard that one's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, this is going to be the last episode before twenty twenty one. I think indeed, in terms of release. Yeah. But for us, it's still a day before Christmas Eve. It is, yeah. <laughs> Even though I, I can't actually go anywhere or do anything, it's going to be nice to have the next few days off for Christmas. So mm. that's one little, um, what's the term, nice thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was, trying to say, I was looking for something more immediate then. But... Presumably our entire audience now has had a tiny, tiny Christmas. So apologies for that. But uh, there you go. Well, actually, to be it's not awful. Actually, I don't know what the rules are in France at the moment because apparently we've gained a huge followership in France. In France? Yes. Oh, wow. So, bonjour, bonsoir, and indeed, salut. Oh, I mean, at some point, I'll be able to pull off like a one-hour special on a profit. So. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think... Well, the only French film we've actually reviewed is probably a, a profit in uh, the premium. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think we've done another French film. Oh, well, I mean, I... I I love Claire Denis for a start. I can go, I can reel off loads of French. That's films, it. Keep so. them coming. We'll get more. Yeah, we'll get more. <laughs> no, don't you worry about that. We'll sort that out. <laughs> okay, let's start out as usual with some film news. Then, uh, kind of big news this week actually. MGM Metro Goldwyn Mayer, yeah, uh, are looking for a buyer. Wow. They are putting their their entire uh, vast film library and, of course, all their new releases coming out. And, of course, they own James Bond franchise and a million other things. They are looking for a buyer. How much do you think MGM is worth? Oh, that just immediately put me out of my misery, honestly. $5.5 billion is what they want for MGM. That includes their entire back catalogue. It's wholesale. It's, it's the whole lot. $5.5 billion. Yep. Jesus. Yeah, so, I mean, there are only a few companies that can afford that. So, really, they're courting Netflix. And let's face it, it's going to be Disney, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Di- it is going to be Disney. Disney, Disney is sucking up absolutely everything. Disney's <laughs> entire mandate for, well, ever since they've been around, really, but particularly in the past five years or so, has been to buy up every single Anything to do with production, anything well, to do with film or TV or media, they want it. Once upon a time, MGM absolutely dominated Hollywood. And uh, if, if Mank is anything to go by, Louis B. Mayer is a complete bastard. So I'm not saying that, that his, uh, the current employees of his of his you know erstwhile corporation deserve to have their jobs usurped or anything. But... Nice little fact, actually, that I gleaned from a QI episode many moons ago is that for a long while, Disney employees were, well, in, in company emails, they were referring to Disney as a mouse switch. <laughs> and uh, an email went round saying that, you know, this is very unprofessional. Can we please stop referring to the Disney company as mouse switch? And so they immediately changed it to duck owl. <laughs> <laughs> But we're well, I think I think old Walt would like that, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> knowing what we know, very possibly. <laughs> How much trouble have we got ourselves in already? <laughs> the, the New Year's episode, you won't see us in 2020. <laughs> sued into oblivion. <laughs> reportedly, this is what people think of Disney. I, we're all slaves to the mouse, basically. I, I'm almost certain. I'm putting my chips down, cards down, my mark in the sand. Disney will buy MGM, I can almost guarantee you. And so that means virtually every much-loved Hollywood property at that point will now be owned by the sadistic mouse. It's not People can come for us if they want in terms of litigation. It's not awful that they were founded by an anti-Semite. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you join that, not me. <laughs> so yeah, I, I take it we're against this. I, I, feel I, don't, I don't particularly like the sound of it. Why, why did Disney are just getting their claws into everything? I want to see something fresh. I mean, like I said, that's pure speculation on my part, but let's face it, that's what we're yeah, all but I, Well, my intuition tells me that you're essentially correct. Prepare to eat my words. Just, but... just to keep our lawyers happy. <laughs> Speaking of Disney, actually, The Mandalorian ended recently. Yes. Of course, Star Wars was probably Disney's biggest property at this point, I would have thought. 
And I'm going to go into a review. Well, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the final episode. But obviously, dancing around spoilers, I can't really reveal anything about the plot. So I'm going to have to talk in very general terms. Look forward to that later. <laughs> but as a result, Disney have pretty much used The Mandalorian as a jumping off point to launch. There's going to be uh, at least 10 different Disney Star Wars TV series. Wow. And multiple new films as well. One of the new series actually is teased at the end of Mandalorian. But I'm not going to reveal what it is because it will reveal a character that is revealed in the series. Sure. And there's still plenty of people that haven't caught up with it yet. Thank you very much, by the way, to everybody on Twitter that immediately watched the new episode of The Mandalorian when it came out and then started putting screenshots up of the final reveal, which is the biggest reveal the show has ever done, and started plastering Twitter with those. Yeah, um, you're, I, you're I, not dickheads at all, are you? I just managed to dodge those, but a lot of people didn't and were furious about it, and I can completely understand why. Why do people fucking do that? Yeah. Seriously. It's, we spend so much of our, off. We spend so much of this podcast dancing around spoilers, yeah. and for very good reason. Every single review that I publish on my blog, I really really try to not give anything away i try and build around that there's also plans apparently for 10 more marvel series and uh going back to the star wars stuff for a second hayden christensen everyone's favorite part of the prequels uh, he's going to come back to play darth vader in the upcoming obi-wan miniseries which is starring ewan mcgregor oh okay that's probably <clears throat> my favorite bit of the prequels and there isn't much to take from the prequels probably my favorite bit was ewan mcgregor as obi-wan kenobi i thought he did a great job yeah. And a pretty solid young Alec Guinness impersonation. I'm not a great fan of Christensen, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Maybe he's taking some acting classes. <laughs> I hate sand gets in your nose. <laughs> We've also got uh, Donald Glover, who I think is absolutely incredibly talented, although the mm. solo movie I didn't think much of. Uh, he's going to reprise his role as space smuggler Lando Calrissian for the TV series Lando. Okay. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah, there's some potential. I mean, there's some good actors going around this. Uh, of course, is he going to be any Billy D. Williams though? Well, I, I think Donald Glover's got the possibility to overtake him. But there you go. We'll do we'll do Star Wars chat later. <laughs> of course, Harrison Ford is a Star Wars veteran. He is seventy eight years old, and he has been confirmed to return as Indiana Jones for a fifth and final instalment in the series. I swear, the last one was the final instalment in the series. There we go. It's going to be directed by Logan's James Mangold. James Mangold. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, his best film is still Copland, so... I liked Logan. No, I did. I liked I Logan. Logan was very, if no. they do a Logan treatment to Indiana Jones, that might actually be worth it. No, watching. Logan's right. It's just it's a shame that a lot of people seem to forget about Copland when it comes to Mangold, and that's what his best film, as far as I'm concerned. So. Christian Bale is going to be in uh, Marvel's Thor Love and Thunder as chief villain Gore the God Butcher. <laughs> Christian Bale? Uh-huh. So he's jumping from the DC universe to the Marvel universe because I got the paycheck's good, I assume. Yeah, I guess so. Uh-huh. So yeah, a, a ton more uh, Marvel and Star Wars stuff. The Marvel stuff I'm not particularly excited about. We are a bit down on the Marvel stuff in general on this podcast. So we both have similar opinions on that. The Star Wars stuff, though, because The Mandalorian has been so successful in what it's done, I'm quite looking forward to. Yeah, I... I'm still at the point where I need to catch up with the second season. I know I'm very disappointing. <laughs> I can't believe you've dodged spoilers, actually, because you're an avid Twitter user. And the spoilers have been immense. I just see, whenever I see a screenshot that looks vaguely like The Mandalorian, I just scroll right past it. And I try, and I just ignore every bit of writing that I can around it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's everyone's responsibility not to spoil media. For some some sadist who follows me or us on Twitter now is going to DM me with loads of spoilers. You, you've fucking <laughs> people like, you know what people are like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom Hanks has a new movie about to release. Oh, yeah. News of the World. And he reckons, he's done an interview with Collider this week, and he reckons that it might be the last adult movie about people saying interesting things that's going to play on a big screen somewhere. He continued, because after this, in order to guarantee that people are going to show up again, we're going to have the Marvel Universe and all sorts of franchise movies. And some of those movies are great. You might want to see them writ large, because actually watching them at home on your couch might diminish them somewhere, somehow in their visual punch. So this is an interesting take on the whole cinema versus streaming thing is that real talky pictures and stuff, you know, dialogue-heavy, plot-focused, character development stuff. I think I think he's right in that studios are probably going to look at this as something that probably won't sell well at the box office and is better suited to a streaming platform. Because a lot of people go to the cinema purely because it's a huge screen. So if you're going to see like a big visual effects piece, that makes it worth it. 
Uh, what, what are your feelings on that? Because you go to the cinema to see everything. Yeah, I do go to the cinema to see everything. And I don't like uh, movies being phased out just because they're not eye and brain candy. Yeah, do you feel it? If, so if you go to like something really dialogue-focused, a mm. novel adaptation or something yep. like that, no big CGI fuckfests, everything's very plot-focused, very dialogue, very character acting stuff. Do you feel that that's enhanced enough by the big screen, the Dolby surround and the atmosphere of the cinema? to warrant going. Would you do that if you weren't a critic? Yeah, I would, because I like the cinema experience. Yes, it's great, as I've said earlier on the podcast, brilliant for something like Tenet. And even though I do enjoy my action films, but there's got to be something sprinkled among them. I'm not a great fan of things like the Fast and the Furious franchise, but I can completely utterly empathise with why that would be a bomb, a positively bombastic experience on a big screen. Smashy big crunchy ride. cars. Smashy crunchy whiz stuff. bang. Yeah. But any film, any film that I consider a good motion picture, I always savour the experience of seeing that on the big screen because I love it. I love the warm, immersive sound. I like, I just, I just love that visual audio experience and I don't like the fact that certain films are likely to be sent to the elephant's graveyard of strictly streaming or whatever just because they don't feature a bunch of wankers in suits. Mm. Yeah, I, I, one thing I was reading the other day which I thought was interesting is that the pandemic has actually done wonders for drive-in cinemas. I've never yeah. actually been to a drive-in cinema. It's not really a big thing in the UK. I know they exist in the UK. No. I've never been to one. But it's one of the small upshots of the coronavirus is that they were doing quite badly versus the big theatres. But of course, the fact that you're enclosed within your own car and everything's sort of distanced as a result anyway means that a lot of uh, regular cinema goers have instead chosen to go to drive through theatres. I missed out. They've had a bit of a renaissance moment. I actually missed out once and I never stopped kicking myself. I got invited to go a few years, what was it, 2016, 2015? There was a drive-in theatre that was set up at Apps Court Farm. Mm. You know, a farm that's not too far from us. And they were screening Back to the Future, one and two back to back. And apparently people were showing up in DeLoreans and fucking like... And I didn't go because I had someone else to do and I'd never stop regretting it. That might be a good way, and until we're all vaccinated, of course, that might be a good Mm. way of getting the communal aspect of the cinema experience. Whilst being socially distanced and... Yeah, not ruining anything. So I think that's interesting. I wonder, once this whole debacle is over, whether that will keep up, whether people will have learned that drive-things are a cool thing. Drive-ins are a cool thing, rather. Or whether people will go back to the cinema. Or whether they go back to you know seeing movies as a communal experience at all. It'll be interesting to see. I've always felt, I don't know, when it, when it comes to uh, the algorithm of motion picture propagations. I mean, what do you think of the fact that the other day I was actually reading, you know what they refer to as dump months, Mm -hmm. where it's typically January and August are referred to as dump months because that's when nobody goes to the cinema. Yeah. And so we won't release any big blockbusters then because they normally push out the films that they're not happy with. Maybe people don't go to the cinema because you don't release the blockbusters. Yeah, so I can always. No, no. Oh, we, we can't put it out in January because people don't go in January. It's not like I, I read that and I thought, well, yeah, it, it's some people make it sound as if people don't go to the films in January just because. Mm. And so we won't release the movie then. Well, so do you think that maybe if you released, say it was a normal year, if you released something like Tenet in January, do you re, do you telling me you seriously believe that this, these seats would be empty yeah. just because it's January? I've always thought that certain approaches to uh, we should release this here and there because of X and Y. I've always, it, to me, it's just always sounded like bollocks. Yeah. But, you know, that's just me. Maybe I'm just being a contrarian arsehole because that's what I like to do. <laughs> <laughs> and final bit of news this week. Barack Obama has taken to Twitter to point out his favourite movies and TV shows of 2020. Oh, okay. He said, uh, like everyone else, we were stuck inside a lot this year. And with streaming further blurring the lines between theatrical movies and television features, I've expanded the list to include visual storytelling that I've enjoyed this year, regardless of format. Would you like to know Barack Obama's top picks? I'm curious to, actually, yeah. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I still haven't seen which that. Which just released. Is that uh, Chad Bozeman's final role? It is it? indeed. Apparently yeah. very good. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things Be interested to hear your review on yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Beanpole. Baccarat. Uh, oh, Baccarat. That's yeah, great. Really like that yeah, that's great. Nomadland. Soul. Lovers Rock Collective, Mank, apparently, really like Mank. Okay. Martin Eden, 
Let Him Go, Time, Boy's State, Seller and the Spades, and Crip Camp. A few of those I haven't seen, but he's... Uh... There you go. Barack Obama has given you a list. President Obama likes Baccarat. Mm. So I think, I, I mean, I went mental about that one on this part because I really love that. And it's it, it's going to be hard work for a lot of moviegoers. I don't say that condescendingly. It's just a very weird film. But no, I'm glad to know he likes it, though. And his favourite TV shows in 2020. Better Call Saul, The Queen's Gambit, I May Destroy You, The Boys, The Good Lord Bird, <laughs> Devs, the Last Dance, Mrs. America, The Good Place, and City So Real. I love the idea that Barack Obama has been sitting back of an evening on the couch with Michelle watching The Boys, which is really, really violent, splatty. Uh, as we said last week, there's lots of C words and T words, and it really goes for it, The Boys. I really like the fact that he's enjoyed it. And I think as well from the whole, and devs as well. Yeah. And that must be really interesting coming from a man that had top secret classified clearance as to what he thought of devs and whether that was realistic. I'd love to hear his opinion. Well, yeah, I, I saw an interview not too long ago. I think it's an old interview, but Obama was discussing his love of the Godfather films and why he loves them. Because he, he, you can do, you can expect that from Obama because he was an intelligent president. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one who is still in office until next month, I don't think he could string a sentence together about why he likes the, you know, the look of a fucking swan that he sees out in the street. <laughs> I think Trump likes the My Little Pony films. The My Little Pony films. They're very great. They're, Actually, they're very bright. They're very colourful. I wouldn't be surprised if he said something like, "I don't watch films. I don't watch TV shows. Me, I'm the best. I'm all you know." The apprentice. To, yeah, nothing beats that. I watch myself all the time. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. Then on with the show as usual. Liam, you have got two reviews this week. I'll yeah. let you decide where you start. Yeah, so I checked out Gerard Johnson's new film, Muscle. I've been a fan of Gerard Johnson ever since I first saw... I first saw his sophomore film, Hyena. Brilliant, brilliant police corruption thriller with Peter Ferdinando in the lead. That came out in 2014. And then I went back and watched Tony, which is his debut from 2009, a black comedy that's partially inspired by Dennis Nilsson, famously portrayed quite recently by David Tennant in... Was it... Is it Dez... Yes. I think it was called, yeah. Very good. So, yeah, well, so Gerard Johnson, Tony and Hyena, I thought, these are really two like, really cool movies that I enjoyed very much. And yet they seem, I say about this in the write-up that I published about Muscle, they still seem very under the radar, very it's a proper sort of nutty cinema enthusiasts, especially people who have a bit of a kink for grimy crime. They only, they only seem, really seem to be known among those kind of circles, of which I am included. And Can we coin grimy, crimey? Right grimy, now? crimey, yeah. Grime, grimy, sentimentalism. Absolutely. So, Gerard Johnson is somebody, is a name that I'd associate with a firm hold, a, a skill when it comes to depiction of the grimy, crimey stuff. And Muscle is his third feature that has just come out on Amazon and Google Play and YouTube. And this stars Kevin Clerkin. Uh, you might know Kevin Clerkin from a few things. He's been in the in-betweeners and EastEnders and stuff like that. He stars as a guy named Simon. And Simon is a telemarketer who is basically in the world's biggest rut. He doesn't like his job. He doesn't like his physique. He's got a paunch and quite noodly arms because he just eats loads of shit all the time. And he spends all his downtime with his mates in the pub bitching about his work or he's at home with his girlfriend, Sarah, and their domestic atmosphere is just very icy, very unpleasant. She usually makes quite derisive comments towards him. He's just not a happy chappy at all. I've just looked up Kevin Clerkin. He was my favourite part of The Last Kingdom. Favourite part of The Last Kingdom? In the, the in, a, in a show with a lot of bad to middling performances. The, the, he, his performance was actually really, really good. For, he, he's a good actor, man. The first mm. thing I saw Kevin Clerkin in was actually The Inbetweeners. He plays the garage owner when the in-between is a sent for work experience. Right, he goes right, to right, work. Right, he's yeah. like, he's like, oh, come on, like, Specky, what's the matter? Fucking Specky. So he, His he, performance shone out like a shining star in a beacon of really yeah, quite rugged. He's, he's a talented guy, man. No, he's a, he's a, he's, he's, guy's got a lot of talent. He's very good. So he's Simon. There's one scene where he's leaving for work one morning after... I think the night before, his girlfriend Sarah spurned his advances and he's like, oh, yeah, I'll get a Chinese, yeah, we'll, get to, we'll have a nice evening together. She's like, yeah, whatever, nothing. The next shot is him leaving for work in the morning with his AirPods in, just crying his eyes out. And it's really authentic. It's 
feel really bad for this guy because he's a reasonably decent bloke, but he just he just hates his existence. Well, one day he's having a walk to work and he sees this enormous guy who come out of a side door, well over six foot, ripped biceps, just the guy looks like a tank. And Simon sees this guy walking in front of him and is just completely shocked by this man's, the way this man is sculpted. And he looks over and he sees that he's come out of a door that reads Atlantis Gym and Solarium. So he goes upstairs on impulse, goes upstairs, and he signs up for a membership. And he starts telling people, I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to cut this shit out. I'm going to cut out the booze. I'm going to cut out the terrible food. I want to get fit. I'm going to get fit and healthy, etc., etc." So he goes back to the gym and he lays on the bench and takes off some of the barbells and starts going on it. And suddenly this great big fucker runs over and goes, oh, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to break your spine if you do that. And this is a gentleman named Terry, played by Craig Fairbrass. Another man I've always been a great big fan of. And Terry just goes, oh, I haven't seen you around here before, I have And someone's like, no, no, I'm new to this, blah, blah, blah. And they start having a bit of a chat. And Terry kind of takes a bit of a liking to Simon. He likes the fact that he just seems to be a kind of down-to-earth, regular kind of guy. He's got a reasonable enough demeanour. And after a couple of times of Simon showing up to the gym, Terry goes, how about, do you fancy having me on as your personal trainer? He's like, I'm a lot fucking cheaper than a lot of other people you can go to, and I can tell you how to get... You don't want to just get fit and healthy. You want to get big and fucking strong. You want to get ripped. I can show you how to do that in no time. You know, I'll charge you way less than you would if you go to a lot of other places. And trust... And also, you know, I can... You know, if you want to just keep it professional and just pay me for my services, that's fine. But you seem like you're in a bit of a bad place. If you want me to kind of help you out in a humanistic way, in a friendly way, I can do that as well. But I don't want to tread on your toes, blah blah So Simon thinks, yeah, okay. And as this goes along, it goes from Terry being a rather aggressively hospitable, friendly trainer slash life coach into something that gets increasingly darker and more disturbing. He's very bigoted, for one thing, very misogynistic. He believes that women are only good for casual sex. He uses a lot of homophobic slurs and racist slurs. He's very temperamental. He cannot abide Simon doing things such as skipping out on a work workout session one evening to go for a fag and a pint he becomes more and more tyrannical and controlling and he starts encouraging simon to take part in orgiastic sort of parties and just gets involved in murkier and murkier businesses until then simon is in a process of he's bulking up he's starting to get the physique he wants but he's just immersed in this milieu that he really doesn't want to be in it's just a really suffocating psychological thriller i really really like this one I really, really like. I've liked Jerry Johnson's filmography so far, and Muscle is no exception to that. And it's just, it's just signs of him getting better and better. Again, he, his brother uh, Matt Johnson. You heard of uh, the the? Yes. Matt Johnson, Jared Johnson's older brother, is the he's the sole member of the the, and he, he actually plays most of the instruments on their studio albums now because they were obviously very big in the eighties and stuff. With an ungoogleable title. Yes, exactly, an ungoogleable title. Well, Matt Johnson has provided the Southley scores for all of Jared's films so far under the name The The, and he's given a brilliant one to Muscle. It's, it's really evocative of this incredibly uncomfortable atmosphere, this mountingly uncomfortable atmosphere that the main guy finds himself in. Because a lot of this film is shot beautifully, Beautiful cinematography, by the way, by Stuart Bentley. It's really crisp, black and white, sort of minimalistic cinematography. And outside of Simon's home and the gym where that him and Terry work out in, it doesn't really go much place else. So there is a sense of confinement that goes along really, really well with the increasingly narrow world that Simon finds himself in because he thought that this would be a new lease of life that would give him some semblance of freedom, being his own man, sort of reclaiming his masculinity with Terry's help. But all he finds is that people he care about start wanting little more to do with him because not only is he bulking up, he starts taking steroids and he's just hanging around with nastier and nastier people now with Terry's encouragement. And it's just a really great psychological thriller slash drama. I love Fairbrass in this because most people look at Craig Fairbrass and they think, oh, it's Dan Sullivan off EastEnders or it's Matey off of London's Burning or it's, it's the guy who played Pat Tate in all the Rise of the Foot Soldier films. Now, to me... That's not top-tier, brilliant stuff, all of that. 
nevertheless, I've always liked Craig Fairbrass. The reason I've always liked Craig Fairbrass is because he's realistic. He's a big bloke from Mile End, and he plays a very authentic variant on that kind of person who is big and bouncy, and they seem really entertaining for maybe the first couple of hours you're having a drink with them, but then you might say something, or you might look at them a certain way, mm. and they get upset, and then things get very, very bad. And I think that Fairbrass has always smashed the life out of those kind of roles. An actor's only ever as good as his script as well, isn't it? I would imagine that the dialogue in this is better than a, a regular, a soap opera kind of yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this is certainly not uh, the kind of, the kind of character arc or the kind of dialogue that you would find in any of the other things I've just mentioned, or even, you know, Julian Gilby, who made the first Riders of Foot Soldier, he would not be capable of this kind of nuance. One of the reasons I like Johnson is because when you watch Tony and Hyena, you can tell... Even if it's not your bag, genre-wise, I think it's quite discernible that it's made by a filmmaker who's got some brains in his head. And and Muscle is even more strongly demonstrable of that. Because in this film, Fairbrass essentially parodies the kind of roles he's become associated with. Because people look at, yeah, they see Pat take, they see him smashing up the pizza parlor, they see him just going fucking mental on coke and whiz and all that sort of thing. Well, in this, he satirises the sort of things such as the latent homosexuality of big homophobic fella. You know, he, he it's a really great, I think I refer to it as a parody amalgamation mm. of the worst stereotypes of men. And the way that Fairbrass does it is brilliant because it has a vein of black comedy and it, Fairbrass's delivery of a lot of the dialogue is just pitch perfect. Mm. You laugh, you laugh at really inappropriate things, but... It doesn't lose sight of you. Know, you're not you're not laughing at Terry's targets of derision. You're laughing at the fact that he's so ridiculously hypermasculine, and he's so predictable in things he likes and dislikes, and how he's going to react to behavioural nuance from people such as Simon who aren't quite sure about his philosophy. And I think Fairbrass just does a fucking fantastic job of that. It's a role unlike any other role he's had, and he just does it perfectly. It's absolutely perfectly. I really, really like Muscle. Great to look at, really well performed. It's a slow burner. Some people might feel that there's a bit of irresolution in it, but I didn't. I actually thought that it teases just the perfect amount of things that it needs to tease. I like the fact that it was more character-focused. There's a somewhat of a vignette sort of nature in it. It's quite an episodic structure of Simon relating to Terry in a certain way. And there's positive, positive and negative reinforcements. And as I say, just a slowly burning atmosphere of Simon's descent into an abyss and his constantly juggling with, am I really better off? Am I just being a, a wimp? Do I need to just acclimatise myself to this this new world? Now, This this is, I guess this is for the best. And I think Clerkin sells that incredibly well. Fairbrass sells it incredibly well. It's just a good movie. It's a, it's a good movie. I really liked it. Excellent. I'll be yeah. def- definitely checking that yeah, out. Yes, it's, it's solid, man. It's a good one. What else have we got this week? Oh, uh, we got uh, another new one. Sound of Metal, Amazon Original. This one is directed by Darius Marder. I've seen a lot of hype about this. Yeah. This is uh, Riz Ahmed, one of the finest actors around today to come out of Old Blighty. And Riz Ahmed stars as Ruben Stone. And Ruben is one half of a sort of punky metal outfits known as Blackgammon with his girlfriend Lou played by Olivia Cook, and they go around the United States regularly touring the film actually opens with one of their concerts and it's, very, it's literally Ruben on the drums and Lou on guitar and vocals so it's very baseless aggressive thrashy heavy metal with a sort of oh, I don't really know an out an, sort of an ad an outfit to uh compare them to maybe a more crossed punky uh what do you call oh, who would <laughs> who were the motherfuckers who they done who did thick freakness uh, black uh, sorry the um black keys so imagine the black oh, i almost said the black eyed peas um, they definitely didn't imagine know. maybe the black the black keys crossed with some really really sure so it's like stripped down Garage yeah. punk, so or maybe yeah. more of a punk let's, metal ethos. Yeah, let's say, so if you took the black keys... You can keys, get so wrapped up in drama with music, kind of. Take the black keys, 
I may be off on that one, but it's the first thing that popped into my head. Well, no, you popped into your head, actually, because I couldn't even get round to it. <laughs> so take the Black Keys and cross them with some sort of ungodly, ferocious, crust-punk band, and that kind of approximates the sort of music that Black Gammon do. So they're smashing it out in gigs, going around all over the US, and they're preparing for the next gig, and something strange happens when they're sorting out some merchandise. Ruben suddenly gets a really piercing attack of tinnitus and everything becomes muffled. All the voices around him sound as if they've had a... a everyone sounds like as if they have had a blanket thrown over them. It's just... And he starts to freak out because this gets worse and worse over the course of the day. And he wakes up the next morning. Lou doesn't know anything at this point. He wakes up very early the next morning. They both live and travel in a trailer, an RV, rather like an RV trailer. And Ruben gets up immediately and he goes down to the pharmacist who refers him to the doctor. And the doctor does an audio test and reveals that he's lost about 70% of his hearing. And within the next few days, possibly the next few hours, is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And so, understandably, Ruben is very, very taken aback and shocked and scared by this and says to the guy, well, what can I do? What can I do? And he goes, well... There's such things as cochlear implants, you know, they've, but they're very, very costly and they'll need adjustments, lots and lots. I think what you need to do is preserve the hearing that you have right now. So the next thing Ruben does is go out and play another show with Lou. <laughs> completely ignoring the fucking advice. Rock and fucking roll, baby. Yeah, absolutely. I remember those days. Yeah, de decimating his hearing even more until during that show, during the very next show in which he completely and utterly ignores medical advice, his ears go completely, can't hear a fucking thing whatsoever. So he freaks out, runs out the back, has a panic attack. Lou comes out and finds him and he spills the beans in as much as he can that I can't hear anything. So they go through this rigmarole and eventually they get in touch with Ruben's sponsor because he's a recovering heroin addict. He used to be heavy drinking, heavy into the heroin. His sponsor finds a place that caters to deaf recovering addicts because Lou and other people are very worried that this sudden hearing loss is going to freak Ruben out enough to propel him back into abusing substances again. So... He goes to this uh, house of recovering addicts, which is part of a wider extended deaf community that has deaf schools and deaf social clubs, etc. And this facility is run by a guy named Joe, played by Paul Racy in an amazing performance. And Joe is a Vietnam veteran who lost his hearing in the war and is a recovering alcoholic. And he says to Ruben, stay here with us for a while. Number one, it's not going to get any better. Your hearing is going. Number two, implants are you won't be able to afford them and number three in this place you're going to have to adjust quickly but we're looking to fix this pointing to his head and not this as opposed to the ears we we're here to essentially teach you that being deaf especially when you have to become accustomed to being deaf is very very frightening but if you want the help you're not alone and you can stay here. Lou, unfortunately, won't be able to stay here with you, but you can stay here and we will help you adjust to this as much as we can. So Ruben is very resistant at first. Riz Ahmed does this magnificently, by the way. I've always been an enormous fan of the guy and he's one of my, my favourite actors for a reason. And in this film, his pathos in this, the way that he conveys the turmoil, the stress and the fear and the sadness of somebody who one day starts rapidly losing their hearing, the kind of panic that would imbue you with. Ahmed does that magnificently. So he toos and throws until Lou eventually says, I'm flying to Europe to spend time with my dad. You're going back to that place. You're going back to that place and I will reconvene with you at some other point down the line. This is what's happening. End of story. So Ruben goes back to Joe's facility and he slowly starts to ingratiate himself with the other people living there, the deaf people who are members of the addict anonymous community that Joe runs, but he also puts them into other programs such as sitting in on classes of deaf school children and learning American sign language and mixing in with other social programs oriented toward the deaf community. 
It's a journey of Ruben's struggle and attempt to have truck with and find peace with this new existence that he has, because it's a brand new existence, because he's never he's never going to hear properly again. So it's his attempt to psychologically and spiritually wrestle with it. This was an incredible film. This film was really, really something. Because firstly, it made me bull my eyes out and there's no soppy sentimentalism to it whatsoever. It's very, it's heartfelt, it's honest. Everything about it is of the utmost emotional sincerity. I think, if I remember correctly, the film is essentially bereft of a musical score. So there's no fucking silly, maudlin music, cheesy strings that tell you when to emote. So you just got the diegetic, the band playing. and Yes. There's virtually no non-diegetic music whatsoever. And I think that really, really helped it. And the, the emotion uh, from Ahmed Cook and Racy, the, all the emotion is so magnificent and authentic, seriously. It's, it's absolutely cut right through. And it does it in a completely adult and mature way. As I said, brilliant performances by Ahmed and Cook, but also special props to Paul Racy, who plays Joe, the Vietnam vet who runs the runs this uh, this deaf communal kind of outreach because he has trodden the boards for years and years and years now and he's had bit parts in some shows and small films. A lot of people are already talking about he, he should get, Ahmed should get uh, an, an award for best actor and Racy should get best supporting actor and I can totally see why people are saying that because Paul Racy, he's a hearing person but in real life he was born to deaf parents. So he's actually grown up very accustomed to the diversity of attitudes in the deaf community. And he and, I mean, I know that Racy isn't deaf, but he and other people from, I'll just go with the phrase, the deaf community, because he said that phrase, and I don't think it's that offensive. No, I'd imagine that's fine. Because whenever you say community, I always think there's something about it that sounds a bit monolithic. Yeah, perhaps patronising, but if they... Yeah, yeah, I'll, but I'll I think just, if it's yeah, but that seems it's, a safe route to go. I think yeah. so. Yeah, well, he will. Racy and members of the deaf community were actually present on set to help authenticate this whole process, this whole experience, and it it really shows beautifully because deaf people in this film are not treated like oh he's deaf. It's it's literally they're just like anybody else. Oh well, yeah, some some deaf people are pissheads. Some deaf people are drug addicts. Some deaf people lose their temper and are not very nice. There's a brilliant approach to it where it's just desanitized and it's just honest and there's no infantilizing because Racy also he conducts a lot of interviews where he relates it to people where nine times out of ten in Hollywood you see depictions of deaf people as being saints mm. who can do no wrong and don't don't have a go at the poor deaf person. It's like no, they're not fucking you're treating them like babies, it's insulting. Yeah. Deaf people are fucking adults as well. And there's a lot of them who it's I think I believe it's a small pocket, but there's there's a pocket of them who believe, well no, actually you're the one who's disabled because you can't sign. I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. This facility that Joe runs, it doesn't go that far, but it is predicated on the belief that being deaf is not a handicap. So it's not something to fix. And Ruben again struggles with that because he yearns so so strongly to return to his old life to go back with get back with Lou to get on the road touring again but he doesn't have a choice and Ahmed's conveyance of that struggle is just absolutely amazing all the performances are brilliant it's just a really really it's a tearjerker without all of the typical garden variety ingredients of a tearjerker it doesn't insult your intelligence. It doesn't tell you when to feel something. Everything is just raw. Everything is honest. Everything is real and completely like from the fucking heart and the mind. And it's just a fabulous movie. It's really, really something. Right then, TV of the week. My yeah. last of 2020. Your last one, man. And I'm kind of glad of that because content is thin on the fucking ground <laughs> at the moment, I'm telling you. Not to say there isn't some good stuff out of there. I mean, people have been asking me to review The Queen's Gambit and I'm halfway through that at the moment, so I'm going to do that one. been hearing some great things. Yeah, apparently so. I, I, yeah, I'm liking it so much so far. I'm still waiting for that magic bit to really hit me that seems to have done for everyone else, but it's motoring along nicely. Anyway, as a little preview to my review next cool. week. But I've got a docuseries to start out with and then we're going to get on to the show that everyone's talking about at the moment. We have to do The Mandalorian, of course. But 
docu-series. Fresh material then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, nice and cheery one. This this has been top on Netflix uh, ever since it's come out. This is The Ripper. The Ripper? Yes. What is it about old mate Jack? Or is it about someone completely different? No, this is about the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, Peter! Indeed, oh, yes. Oh, Peter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is a series of murders that were committed in Yorkshire and the Midlands in the 70s. And so we have a depiction of 70s Britain and the investigation into how to track this guy down. Basically, it's your old-fashioned tracking down a serial killer documentary. First thing to say about it is that it's remarkably well shot given that they're com- they're running on 70s footage. Hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of the stuff back then, 70s British TV quality cameras really weren't very good at all. Not particularly, no. There's some drone shots in this of sort of 1970s Yorkshire where I'm like, okay, well, how did you manage that exactly? Have you done like a a modern drone shot of Yorkshire and then cut out all the skyscrapers and things like that? It's one of those follow the mystery down, keep going through the muck and eventually you get to your serial killer at the end. So, you know, there's suicide comparisons, there's all that sort of stuff. Um, it's very compelling. I see this is done very well in the American market, and I totally get that because they're probably not aware of the Yorkshire Ripper and how much of a, a huge deal this was in the 70s. Because serial killers were still sort of a new concept back then. And this idea that this guy was wandering around at night targeting young, vulnerable women and murdering them in sequence was just mind-blowing for people at the time that suddenly you couldn't go out and enjoy a night out in you know the Yorkshire Dales or wherever else there's been quite a bit of criticism of this for inserting a layer of feminism into the narrative and I've seen sort of 50-50 reviews where they've gone well basically yeah did the feminism aspect need to be there is it overstated and I can sort of see that critique because there are a, a few talking heads within this that are talking about the relation to the fact that the police decided that he was a prostitute killer, that he wasn't just going out and murdering women anywhere. If you weren't a prostitute, you were probably okay. And then as the narrative continued and as they worked out more and more about this guy, that that was essentially a dead end, a red herring, the wrong avenue to go down. And what sort of judgment the police force was making about women. Now, I can totally see why that's been pulled into the documentary, but it does have a very strong and sometimes narrative covering version of that perspective. We talked recently about Werner Herzog's Fireball. Yeah. And the fact that one of the great things about Werner Herzog is that he puts his own frame of mind and his own viewpoint into his documentary overtly. Right, yeah. Every film he makes. And as a result, that boosts it. We talked about how having a biased documentary isn't a bad thing. I think the same here. And I think, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to look at this from a feminist perspective because it was about young women. And some of these women that were accused by the police of being prostitutes, as the documentary examines, weren't necessarily prostitutes. They may have been around that sort of person. They may have even done a bit of it in the past. But to say they were out-and-out prostitutes and he was a prostitute killer does show the male bias of the time. So I think on one level it's successful and it needs to be there. On the other level, it is maybe slightly over-egging it and the documentary becomes a little bit too focused on that aspect rather than tracking down this despicable human being. Yeah. So it's a bit of a half and half this. I found it compelling. Uh, It pulled me down the thread nicely. It's very, very well shot. And again, I don't know how they've done some of the footage in it, which I thought was quite interesting. It's, you know, it's another grim Netflix documentary (laughs) to finish off your 2020, guys. You talking about the feminist aspect, it reminds me of, because Richard Littlejohn a few years ago when they were talking about Stephen Wright, the Ipswich strangler Mm -hmm. who killed those women back in, was it 2009, I believe? Something like that. Maybe earlier than that. And Richard Littlejohn did a a much and rightfully derided piece saying that, oh, referring to these women, these victims as women who worked as prostitutes is political correctness gone mad and you should just call them prostitutes. So I think in light of things like that, I can definitely see why there would be a feminist lens. Because if you have people propagating that kind of attitude... And there are there are plenty of people who agree with that kind of revolting sentiment mm. that Little John emanates. I, I, from the sound of it, I could be de- I could definitely be sensitive to why there is that. Really, what it's trying to show is sort of that unconscious male bias in that because the police thought that well this guy was hunting only prostitutes, then they were barking up the wrong tree. 
Right, yeah. And so as a result, they would have caught this guy a lot earlier. And allow, just, allowing him to evade capture. Yeah, yeah, and as well, they put out huge mandates and a TV campaign and huge uh, million-pound advertising campaign, which obviously was a lot of money back in the 70s, to tell women in these areas to stay at home. Not men, just women to stay at home. Because if you're a woman walking around at night, the Ripper might get you. And pulling that into the whole feminist perspective and... 70s is where you've got Thatcher starting to come in. You've got women are starting to get a different viewpoint on life that they're, you know, you've gone past the 60s bra burning stuff and you're now going into women becoming in positions of power and to tell all of them to stay home. Meanwhile, the lads can go out and have a beer was a big societal, uh, there were protests. It was a, a really, really big deal at the time. So it does go into that stuff. And I see the reason it's there. Maybe it goes a little bit too far into it to lose the thread of chasing down a horrible, horrible man. Right. But I do sort of see why. I can see both angles of that argument. So it's it's a compelling Netflix documentary murder series that everyone's talking about at the moment. And hence why I have covered it here. It's quite good. I, I don't it's, think it's going to blow anybody's mind, but as as these sort of things go, it's it's a fairly good it's one. Well, it's well made. Yeah. And what more can you say about something like that, really? There's only been a few recently that have really blown my head off. I was talking the other week about uh, Room 280, whatever, and I thought that was really particularly well done. The Ripper is a, a 7 out of 10 docuseries. I've only seen, when it comes to documentaries about Sutcliffe, I've only seen sort of, you know, cheap and nasty BBC 45-minute specials mm-hmm. about it, which aren't, you know, everyone knows what to expect from those. So if this one has something refreshing to offer, mm. in terms of in ter- especially in terms of a much-covered subject when it comes to media, then... It's chasing down the unnamed man, although in this country, I don't think that necessarily works so well because we all know the name Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah. They sort of reveals it like, ta-da, this is the guy and for everyone in this country. Maybe there's some American listeners going, oh, bollocks, well, now I know his name. <laughs> Perhaps I have spoiled a real-life murder case. But yeah, it's mostly successful, I'd say. I've seen better and I've seen worse. I know it's a bit of a wishy-washy thing to say, but that's my honest take on it. Sounds grim at any rate, mm. so... So Merry fucking Christmas and and a Happy New Year as well. (laughs) Okay then, on to the TV series everyone's been talking about. It's released its last episode recently. This is of course Chapter 16, The Rescue, the last episode of Season 2 of The Mandalorian. Mm. Uh, The episode that I can't talk about. (laughs) Because in order to set this up, I'd have to tell you exactly what happened in the previous episodes, particularly what happened in the tragedy, which a lot of people haven't caught up with, and there's one opposite me right now on a webcam connection that hasn't seen it yet, and I'm still very disappointed in you. And I still cannot believe that you haven't seen any spoilers yet. That is really, truly incredible, because there is a huge reveal in this episode that could be spoiled by a single screen grab, as many people have been doing on Twitter. It's because I tell people that if they spoil anything around me, I'm going to kill them. Well, even on the Twitter feed and stuff like (laughs) this, I had to dodge them left and right. I basically had to boycott Twitter for a couple of days because I was reviewing other stuff to get to this point so I could see it fresh. So anyway, it has a ridiculously huge reveal in it, a ridiculously huge badass moment that plenty of people have been posting reaction videos online to, actually, because it's a character coming back into play that you really didn't think would be thrown into the mix. And that's as far as I can go on this one. I think really what I'm going to do on this review... Is chewy? (laughs) Yes, it's chewy. Yeah. I think what I'm going to do with this really is look back at season two of Mandalorian as a whole and think about where the Star Wars universe is going to go next because the Mandalorian, I think, is the most successful piece of Star Wars narrative since the original films. In fact, in a way, and I know this is very contentious, I'm going to say that it's actually perhaps going further and better than the original Star Wars films. Now, some people, that'll be contentious because those things are written in stone. The Star Wars films are the absolute pinnacle of modern storytelling and a huge part of people's childhood. The rose-tinted glasses go on and they will hear no more of it. The Star Wars films are perfect in every way. Let's face it, though, they're not. They're not perfect pieces of work. No, nothing is. I think what's really surprising that it's taken us until 2020 or 2019, really, when Mandalorian Season 1 came out, to use modern production techniques to come up with something that can compete with it. Mm. I mean, that's sort of an achievement in and of itself. I think The Mandalorian is better at Star Wars than the original Star Wars films, which is a great leaping off point for where <clears> everything <throat> is going to go oh, from this point on. That's wrong. That's objectively wrong. 
You're preempting <laughs> the uh, my, my Twitter debates for the next two weeks. So. Yeah. Uh, what is the reasoning for this? Well, for a start, it knows exactly why the original Star Wars films capture people's imagination. It's directors, filmmakers, props department guys, CGI effects guys playing with their toys. It's exactly what you did as a kid when you had a plastic X-Wing and a plastic Death Star. You went... Yeah. And then this person turns up and then there's a lightsaber swinging bit. And then that's pretty much what they're doing with this unbelievably well-funded playset. That comes across in every element of The Mandalorian. It would be utter bollocks, though, if they didn't have an understanding of the most key important thing to the Star Wars universe. And in fact, any sci-fi show or indeed any show in general, really, which is an understanding of visual storytelling and visual narrative. The number one rule of narrative that so many people forget time and time again to this day is... Timing. No. (laughs) Show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Mm. By making the Mandalorian, Mando himself, a taciturn character. That was comedy, wasn't it? Not narrative. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now I've ironically made myself a laugh. Stop. (laughs) Loved it though, I'm going to leave that gap in there for the other. <laughs> no, it's show, don't tell. Visual storytelling. The original Star Wars films are very good at it. The prequels are very bad at it. The J.J. Abrams films, I thought, were half and half yeah. in terms of show, don't tell. You don't want huge dialogue pieces about trade disputes or you know, <laughs> how, how someone feels about another character. Show, don't tell is the absolute crux of whether a show works or whether it doesn't. You should be able to watch a good TV show or a good film in a different language without subtitles and still be able to understand the plot. And you can do that with The Mandalorian because they know just how much importance is placed upon the visual. Otherwise, it would be a fucking radio play. And even in radio plays, even in the fucking archers, you still do show, don't tell. You still have to cut the dialogue down and pass it. When you look at the scripts for The Mandalorian... There's not a lot of big, long conversations about the morality. I spoke last week about um, the episode, the, the Believer, that was essentially doing a remake of Sorcerer. And so they actually had a rare moment where two characters are sitting in a location and having a conversation about the existential uh, morality and moral relativism of what these characters are doing. That moment works because the show actually hasn't really done it that much so far. Mm. So it becomes all the more punchier. Ah, now they're going to discuss themes. Now they, and so now you're interested because you've been pulled by the nose through fantastic visuals, through subtle things like the, the Wild West gunslinger. That's the genre trope that the Mandalorian goes back to again and again and again as the Wild West gunslinger. That is Mando. Why is Clint Eastwood such a good actor in terms of Wild West gunslinging roles? Because he knows how to do taciturn. Because those spaghetti western scripts had really tiny bits of dialogue in them. It all had to be through subtle emoting. And so you've got a guy in a helmet and a full body armor suit doing little looks and movements and nervously grabbing his gun and things like that. That works so much better. That is the key to Star Wars. It's the key to good storytelling. And it's the key to why The Mandalorian is successful as a show. It relies on the visual and the visual will pull you through it. You can watch it with the sound off almost, although I wouldn't recommend it because the sound effect's fantastic. You've got a 5.1 yeah. system. It all sounds fantastic. But visual storytelling. And I really want the rest of the creative media, content creating universe to look at The Mandalorian and realise that fact. Because it's something that people have been banging on about for a very, very long time. Is that you must do show, don't tell. Because if you do, suddenly you get this, the audience can create the narr- the dialogue and this spoken stuff in their heads. They're putting this world together through using their eyes. And we we sit here and we talk about visual media. We don't talk about radio stuff. We don't talk about books. I occasionally talk about books. But you're using your eyes and your imagination and that's what makes The Mandalorian a great show. And it's been so successful. We've now got a million spin-offs, and at least half of them are going to be awful because yeah. at least half of them are not going to understand the show Don't Tell. Which is, we're now going to get talky ones and they're going to be rubbish. Yeah, we'll, now. we're taking on the mantle of uh, the wider creative world's abusive parents. Why couldn't you be more like him? You know, <laughs> for Christ's sake. They, you know? they are setting themselves up for an inevitable fall here, I think, yeah. by spreading out that wide. But at the very least, there's going to be a lot to choose from. Mm. So Star Wars fans are now going to go, well, you know, The Mandalorian's great, but there's also, you know, whichever ones end up being good will be the ones you know, we'll end up reviewing. Well, I'll end up reviewing all of them on this podcast. But I hope, 
I really, really hope that the people making these have realised that the key thing to The Mandalorian is not that it's the Star Wars universe, although that's a big part of it. It's the fact that it knows how to visually tell a story. So ends the sermon, according to Andy. Sweet. (laughs) I'll take that. All right, then. It's very nearly the end of 2020. And so for trivia this week, rather than doing film stuff, I thought I'd do facts and trivia and things that you might have missed that happened in the year just gone. Well, nothing. We haven't been able to do anything. Ah, you'd think, (laughs) because the news has been dominated by the pandemic, lots of interesting things have happened this year. And they've all been pushed to the side by the orange man in the Oval Office and the fact that there's a horrible virus rampaging around the world. I mean, who would would have thought that that would dominate the uh, international news? (laughs) But there's been lots of other stories as well, and I thought we'd do a few of them here. I'm going to start off with this. Florida man. Don't you love it when a headline starts out with Florida man? (laughs) This is a good one, though. Florida man finds trove of valuable treasures from 1715 shipwreck. A trove of Spanish coins dating back to a 1715 shipwreck during a storm have been found along a beach in Florida. 43-year-old treasure hunter Jonah Martinez located the coins using a metal detector. He was able to dig out 22 silver coins. He estimates are worth about, how much do you think, 22 silver coins of pirate treasure are worth? $15. 6,000. 6,000? Wow. Which strikes me as an incredibly small amount of money. I mean, 6,000. If me and you were on a beach and we saw something glinting in the light and we went and dug it up and it was genuine, honest-to-God pirate treasure, we'd be jumping up and down going, we're rich, we're rich. No, six grand. That's all you fucking get. But that's going to is that that's now going to be appropriated by somebody, isn't it? He's not going to be able to... Like, it depends on the laws. Yeah, I don't know what the treasure appropriation laws are. And more to the point... In Florida. What was he doing out on a beach? It's lockdown. He's violated lockdown. He it's, shouldn't be out doing that. It's one hour of exercise. Oh, day. yeah. That old chestnut. 12 Spanish galleons laden with treasures from the New World were bound for Spain on July 31st, 1715, but 11 were lost during a hurricane off the coast of Florida. Most of the treasure lies beneath the ocean. Uh, here we go. Florida law requires recovery permits for individuals who want to explore or recover artifacts on state-owned lands underwater, but not on a public beach. So does he get to keep it and sell it for six grand? I believe so, yes. Fair dues. Here's a lovely bit of 2020 news. Rare two-faced kitten born. Kitten with two faces. That's horrible. In May, it gets worse. (laughs) In May of 2020, a rare two-faced kitten was born in Albany, Oregon. The kitten was born with a birth defect called cranial duplication. Both mouths moved and were able to nurse. Do you want to know the 2020 bit? Okay. Unfortunately, the kitten passed away a few days after birth. It's not surprising. What a brilliant year this has been. That's a terrible story. Why have you told me that? Depressing, <laughs> just, depressing just horrible story. to bring story. everybody down. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy Sullivan. This is something I absolutely saw nothing on this year. Kathy Sullivan, who was the first US woman to walk in space, a veteran of three shuttle missions and an enshrined member of the US Astronaut Hall of Fame, took a perilous journey downwards and became the first woman to reach Challenger Deep, the deepest point on Earth in the Pacific. Well. You may remember the name of the site, which rests nearly seven miles beneath the water's surface. In the Mariana Trench near Guam, I always want to say marinara, like the sauce. (laughs) Uh, From James Cameron's solo dive in 2012. At the time, Cameron's was the first manned expedition to the area in more than half a century. Since then, Viscovo has piloted several different missions to the depths of Challenger Deep. All told... Just seven people have reached the point before Sullivan, all of whom were men. Sullivan, who became an astronaut in 1979, made history in 1984 as the first US woman to walk in space. Sullivan logged more than 532 hours in space before leaving NASA for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where she ultimately served as the administrator. Badass. Very badass. A little bit more space news. For the first time in history, NASA astronauts launched from American soil in a commercially built and operated American crewed spacecraft on its way to the International Space Station. The SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft carrying NASA astronauts Robert Behnken and Douglas Hurley lifted off at 3.22pm, Saturday 14th November, on the company's Falcon 9 rocket. Today, a new era in human spaceflight begins as we once again launched American astronauts on American rockets from American soil, American, (laughs) on their way to International Space Station, our national lab orbiting Earth, said NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. I thank and congratulate Bob Beckham, Doug Hurley, and the SpaceX and NASA teams for this significant achievement for the United States. There you go. Space is now being privatised. Isn't that fantastic? 
Jesus wept. This was interesting in terms of firsts, though. So, this, again, good 2020 news to take away with you. It was the first flight of the NASA-certified commercial system designed for crew transportation, which moves the system from development into regular flights. The first international crew of four to launch on an American commercial spacecraft. The first time the space station's long-duration expedition crew size will increase from six to seven. And the first time the Federal Aviation Administration has licensed a human orbital spaceflight launch. So a sign of things to come, I think we're going to see a lot more space in the next decade or so. Well, that makes you happy, doesn't it? It does, yes. I kind you're, of wish... You thought it had, uh, you know, croaked its last breath sort of within... I kind of hate the fact that it's in the hands of Elon Musk, though, who is, by all accounts, a knob. You know, my only exposure to Elon Musk in terms of witnessing him as an individual was watching him on the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm -hmm. And he struck me as a bit of a strange guy. What I was expecting from him was an aura of extreme narcissism, which mm. I'm not saying he doesn't have, but to me, he just seemed like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, what constitutes him being a knob, genuinely? Cause a lot of uh, people working inside his factories, making Tesla cars, etc., have reported that he's uh, incredibly difficult to deal with, fires people on a whim. He was forcing his employees to work during um, COVID conditions, I seem to remember, allegedly. I'd better point that in for the lawyers. Well, if that is true, then fuck him. Yeah. He also said the whole coronavirus thing will be over by April. So there you go. That was a good take, but not, all, not always right. But hey, he's making spaceships, so there's something there, isn't there? <laughs> of course, this is the year that the Pentagon has officially released three short videos showing unidentified aerial phenomena, Ooh. which in any other news year would be a gigantic story and completely fell under the radar with the whole pandemic dealio. In that this is the U.S. government admitting that there are UFOs. They have film of them. They actually released that film. They've set up organisations and internal... 2020 has been the year of two-headed beasts, plagues and aliens. Yeah. <laughs> this is the US government. People have been waiting for this for years. This is the US government admitting that there are unidentified objects that they've been tracking in US aerospace that plenty of their experts are quite happy to say are very likely of yeah, extraterrestrial origin. Mm. And, yeah, this is a government admission of that fact. And it just completely got smoothed over. With the pandemic restricting people's travel this year, airlines have been forced to improvise to at least give passengers the feeling that they are allowed to fly around the world. The Australian airline Qantas offered customers the chance to fly around the sites of Australia and even travel to Antarctica without even leaving the plane before touching down right where it had left off in Sydney. It doesn't sound that thrilling, and with prices ranging between £445 and £2,145, you can understand if people passed on it. <laughs> However... It became one of the airline's most popular flights ever and sold out in just 10 minutes. A spokesperson for Qantas said, It's probably the fastest selling flight in Qantas history. People clearly miss travel and the experience of flying. If the demand is there, we'll definitely look at doing more of these scenic flights while we all wait for borders to open. So, sorry, this is people getting on a plane, which is a huge COVID risk, right? Mm. And then, but rather than getting on a plane because they needed to be somewhere, like somewhere very important, they went on the plane, they had a look around, Massively increased their chances of possibly getting COVID and then landed exactly where they started from and they paid up to two grand for the privilege. Jesus Christ. Wasn't, uh, I, I think it may have changed since the release of the film because Rain Man came out in 1988, but it was from Rain Man I learned that I think Qantas up to that point was the only airline that never had a plane crash. Really? Yeah. Oh, every, other every other major airline up until that point, with the exception of Qantas, had plane crashes and fatalities, well, with both fatalities and non-fatalities, but Qantas had never had a crash. I, th I think it may have done since then, but that was, sorry, that's a bit of a... a, a no, that's a good bit of That's trivia. an irrelevant like that. tidbit for you. And one final bit of trivia to finish off with here. I know 2020 has been a bad year for just about everybody on the planet, mm. but it could be worse. Because historians have identified what was very likely to be the worst year in humanity's history. And it was 536 AD. In 536 AD, there was a gigantic volcanic eruption in Iceland with a resulting ash cloud that kept the northern hemisphere in the dark for 18 months. It dropped temperatures to their coldest period and led to mass crop failure and, of course, starvation. More volcanic eruptions followed. Then, just a few years later, the bubonic plague took off across the Roman Empire from Egypt to Europe wiping out as many as 50 million lives with its gruesome symptoms. The combination naturally led to a bleak economic environment as starvation and disease took their toll on the population. 
While things improved about three decades later, they didn't fully pick back up until 640, a full century later, when a total economic transformation took hold. So there you go. Climate change, huge, massive bubonic plague disease, um, 50 million people dying. It could, it could be a lot worse, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Climate change, massive plague disease. That is 2020. Yeah, but it was, <laughs> it's just... 500, yeah, this was the worst version of it. Essentially, if you were in 536, it was all the problems we have now, but worse. So just be glad you weren't alive. At least, we at least who would have been in 536 in the UK? What would have been the prevailing sort of? I'm I'm terrible at history. I think mm. you probably have a better instantaneous answer. Well, would that would have been would that have been Roman domination? I think it's slightly after the Romans. It would sort of be Anglo-Saxon. Uh, the Romans were left by that. No, this this would be a shockingly stupid question to many people because. I'm, I have a vague awareness of historical eras, but if some, if you mention the year 536 AD, I won't be able to go like this. No, I believe the Romans had left the by The were in the charts. I don't know. We, we were back to Anglo-Saxon. I think it's sort of King Arthur times, and bef- right, right before you know the Vikings came back. Well, came in, rather. So we love the Anglo-Saxons because they gave us words like fuck and cunt. Absolutely. Yeah, which indeed. is good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week and our last one of 2020. Our last one of the year, mate. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the content. We're off to record our premium special now, which is going to be all of our highlights. We're going to do our 2020 roundup. We really. certainly are, mate. So this is going to be all of our favourite films we've seen this year, all of our favourite TV shows. We're going to round them all up like good little sheepdogs and put them into a nice pen in podcast form. Did I overstretch that analogy? I felt like I overstretched. No, that, that was analogy. nice and warm. That was yes, very, very, lovely. very homely, very wholesome analogy. That was. They are wholesome. That's something we've never been accused of being. No, there we go. Then <laughs> probably won't again. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for listening. If you are interested in going on to our premium content, please do check out cinematalist.com for a link to our Patreon page, or just Google Patreon Cinematalist, or you can find the link as well on our Twitter page. We're at Cinematalcast, and you can find Liam's Twitter feed at. Uh, I'm Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. That's Flicks spelled F-L-I-X. And on cinementalist.com, you can find a link to the Wacko Jacko blog where you can read all of the reviews that I publish on a weekly basis. Fantastic. Yeah, so please do think about checking out the premium content. If not, we will see you in the new year for more film and TV-related stuff. Thank you very much, people. Thank you for sticking with us, guys. See you soon. <laughs>